You're listening to the New Gen Sermon Podcast. Uh, what a joy, what a privilege to be here. Now, when Russ was on eldership back in South Africa, he had dark black hair. <laughs> uh, yeah, the wisdom that Australia has given him is amazing. Um, he used to remind us of that movie star, Jim Carrey, you know, that guy, that's what he looked like back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> ah, he's got a good fan club. <laughs> well, I, I feel very privileged. I'm told that you are like the most locked down nation in the entire world. So I made it in. I made it in through your borders. Amazing. Uh, when I first knew that Russ could preach, was uh, he got up in front of it. It was, it was quite a big crowd. We asked him to preach uh, on this particular stage. And I'd, I'd heard him preach little messages before, but this time he got out and he took a daisy out of his pocket. And he said, he loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. And I thought, oh my word, where's this going? And uh, you know that that was the, 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 they shouldn't keep these records, but they do keep these records. It was the best selling CD that, or watch downloaded sermon for decades until COVID. And then I'm afraid you've been, you've beaten hands down even by our youth leaders. Because <laughs> everyone's watching downloads. His dad, Garth, used to be our man who built our buildings. So we've got this massive auditorium in one of our cities that God, they used to call him Bob the Builder. And he used to stand up once a month with a yellow, little yellow hat on his head and he used to um, give a report back as to how his big building was going. And, uh, you know, one of the things that Russ and, and Jen was... A huge challenge to me back in the day when you were young pastors, they knew that God had a call on their lives to go into the nations and to plant and to lead. And uh, so they chose to move their house and go and live in one of the poorest suburbs in our entire city, uh, in this like real little shanty type part of town. And uh, that was a massive challenge, uh, Jen and Russ, uh, to us in those days. Knew then that your heart was sold for the kingdom and, and for what God had in store. So when I saw Russ earlier today, yeah, he said, because I've never actually spoken to you as a congregation before. I've only ever spoken to your elders as I've passed through Australia. So I said, like, I don't know too much about your church and so he said, which I know has always been on his heart, I've got a real longing to see us equipped to share the gospel. And so what I'm going to do this evening is, um, if I can just get my times right, Russ, it's quarter past seven, so when do I stop the first one? Um, right, quarter, quarter two. Okay. Let me go for half an hour. We'll knock down that cake, yep. and then uh, we'll do another round two. Exactly. So... I've heard people say that God sees the world homogeneously, that he, he doesn't divide up the world, but 
but God actually does. He, I think he divides the world into two. Uh, those who are in the kingdom and those who are out. Those who have been saved and those who are not yet saved. Those who are citizens of the kingdom, those who are not. And if you look through the Bible, in fact, if you look at every religion, every religion is man's attempt to try and reach God. But we know that the gospel is the good news that God himself has come to reach us. And, and that's... Luke 19 says, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. And this is the great privilege we have. He hasn't decided to do that all by himself. He uses you and me to bring in the lost. We don't need to be evangelists. We're not talking about, you know, having to go knock on every door. It's just God's way. Theologians call it the missio dei, the mission of God is to see people that are not in the kingdom brought into the kingdom. People that are not citizens of heaven to become citizens of heaven. And we get the privilege to be included in his missio day, in his mission. And uh, you, you know that. But the question that I'm going to be looking at tonight is, practically, how does that work for you and for me? How, we, we know that Jesus saves. We know that the Holy Spirit convicts. We know that the Holy Spirit draws people to God, but how does He use you and me? Because it's a great joy to be used by God this way. And it's not that He makes us, but if you don't, if you just say, mm, I'll leave that to, to Russ and a couple of other guys, uh, you miss out on a great, great joy. Uh, John talks about the reaper and the sower rejoicing together. In other words, the person who shares Jesus and the person who sees that person coming to faith are rejoicing together. And that's what God wants. Just like I'm going to be a grandfather in about five weeks' time for the first time in my life. There's already excitement going on in my house. And that's the reason my wife's not here. She said, heaven forbid that I'm in Australia and the baby would come. You can go by yourself. I said, what about your friends? What about all? Don't worry, we've got a baby coming. Why? There's going to be huge rejoicing when that baby arrives. And spiritually, the same thing. The Bible talks about a rejoicing in heaven. And not only in heaven, we rejoice when people's lives get transformed. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you to John chapter 4. This is a well-known story about a woman at a well. I'm going to use this chair too. Help me illustrate. And um, let me give you a little bit of background. Jesus was taking a shortcut. So he goes through Samaria and he's um, tired. It's the middle of the day. And so he's left Judea. And he comes to this place where Jacob, hundreds of years before, had dug a well. And it's, it's the middle of the day and he's tired and so it says in the beginning of John, he sits down at the well and his disciples go into town to go and get food. So what do we know about Jesus at this point? He's tired. He's hot. He's hungry. Well, at least his disciples are hungry. So they've left him there. And he's sitting alone at the well. And at that point, a woman comes down to the well 
with no other woman. Now, the women used to come down together, and so this one was a little bit of an outcast in society. We'll find out why in a moment. But she, she comes down to the well, and as she comes, now remember, this is cross-cultural, Jews, Samaritan. Remember, this is man, woman talking. This is like not really done. And Jesus says to her, you know, can I have a drink? And so she says, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. Like, you, you, what are you doing talking to me? And, and, and that's how the story begins. And so the first thing that I want to observe from the story is that I'm not so sure Jesus was in the mood for a revival right then. He was hot, he was tired, he was hungry. And yet that where he was. So here's my question too. Where are you? Where are you tomorrow when you're hot, tired, and hungry? God positions us. Well, he's positioned you in Melbourne. And I think your workstation is your mission station. Your home address. Do you think it's an accident that that neighbor, that irritating one, that plays his music too loud, is there next to you? You reckon that's an accident? What about the dude that you see when you watch your kid playing soccer? Do you think that's an accident? God has positioned us. Acts 17 says that before you were even born, he knew the exact place and time where you would live. And so if your desk is your launch pad, which it was for Jesus right now, he was, he was sitting there, he was about to engage her with the gospel. Uh, then, then it's possible God can use you tomorrow. You don't have to wait until you've got some degree. He, he could use you tomorrow. When Russ was a young man, uh, he dropped out of university because he got radically saved. And he says, who needs a degree? I'm going to save the world. And um, I don't know what his mom and dad must have thought, but he, uh, he, he got a job, you know, to, to, to make some money. Um, getting people to donate blood. So I've got first-hand experience of this particular story because my wife was a registered nurse. She was the blood sucker. She took the blood. <laughs> this was with the blood transfusion service of our country, our national blood transfusion service. My wife and a couple of other nurses, they would put the injections in and suck the blood. But he would go on the street like a vampire and like bring everybody in. I don't know what he spoke to them about, but he was convinced that this was his mission station. One day, they were at a hotel. I might get the story slightly wrong, but I don't think it's too wrong, Russ. He's old and gray, and he won't remember it directly. So I, so I can tell you how my wife tells the story. So imagine, there's a whole lot of nurses, women in our country, a driver who's a bloke, and Russell. And they're overnighting at this hotel. And they're all eating in the dining hall. But it's a public hotel. It's a big dining hall. At the end of supper, sorry, I haven't got COVID. At the end of supper, he stands up in this dining hall with a spoon, like you know, like you would as you MC a wedding. And he gets everybody's attention. Hello, everybody. And this is the blood transfusion service. And he's like speaking in a loud voice in this hotel restaurant. And he says, um, basically, let me tell you about the gospel. And he gives his testimony. And then now it was highly inappropriate for him to be, you know, 
praying with ladies alone because it's like this is a hotel. So uh, he had really approached my wife and another woman said, would you mind you're coming to a room on the side and anyone who wants to get prayer, I will pray with him. And so after his ceremony, uh, he, he basically says, if anyone would like prayer to receive Jesus as their Savior, come to this room and Mrs. Crawford will be there and someone else will be here, then we'll pray for you. And someone got saved. Now, I'm not suggesting that's the way you do it tomorrow. You might get fired if you do it that way. I don't know how long he lasted at that um, uh, company. But one thing he was convinced about is that God had put him there. To, and there is a person who is saved uh, because of that. And I was telling him today a, a story about a friend of ours who got a coffee shop going up our west coast. And my wife and I popped into the coffee shop because we were visiting the area and we'd heard he was there. He wasn't though. And so I was standing at the counter and someone comes up to me and says, I know you. Now this is 1,800 kilometers from where I live. 1,800 kilometers from where I live. This lady comes to me and says, I know you. I said, no, I don't think you do. I live a long way away. She says, no, I've seen you on TV. I said, well, look, I, I've never been on TV. You definitely don't know me. No, no, not real TV. YouTube. I see you on YouTube. So I said, oh, do you watch some of our church services? She says, yes. I watch your church services. So I said, well, how long have you been a Christian? She said, well, I got saved on that couch over there. It was a customer in a coffee shop. Couldn't believe it. So I said, yeah. And she, this guy led me to the Lord. And I, he didn't take you to church? No. He said, watch, watch you online. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. I go to my car. My wife's with me. Go to my car. Getting in my car. We're driving back. A lady's walking a dog. She says, hey, Pastor Crawford, I know you. So I said, now let me guess. The people in here, they led you to the Lord. She happened to be the GP, the doctor in that town. This couple, they were coffee makers. Moved to a town and they knew nobody. And yet... The people who came, they bought this couch and they said to, it was a red couch. And they said, Lord, that's our counseling couch. <laughs> and everyone who comes to, the, you know, it's like a pub. You know, people come into the pub and they tell their stories and they say, come sit on our couch. <laughs> and on that couch, they've been leading people to the Lord. Why? That coffee shop's their mission station. And so where's God put you? Where's God put you? I believe when I get on an airplane that the person in the seat next to me is not there by accident. <laughs> Out of all the people in the entire universe, boom. That's definitely not an accident. And so when you're standing in a bank queue, do you still go to banks here? I don't know. Tomorrow, that irritating person in front of you, it might be just to pray for. It might be to encourage We'll get into that in a moment. But this was Jesus' mission station. So Jesus said, will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? The second thing I'd like us to think about here is how he began to engage with this lady. He didn't say, are you washed in the blood? <laughs> Not that that's a wrong question. He didn't say, if you die tomorrow, are you going to hell or are you going to heaven? I mean, you could say that too, but that, he didn't say that. 
He said, can I have a coffee? Can I have a drink? He just asked her a question. You know that you've often heard a preacher say that Jesus is the answer. Let me tell you this. Jesus is not just the answer person. Jesus is the question person. Do you know that Jesus asked more than 300 questions in the Gospels? Very often when people ask Jesus a question, you know how he answered it? He asked them a question. Should you pay taxes? Well, whose face is on this coin? And so Jesus used questions to open people's hearts. Around about the same time as Garth and Jen moved out here, I took my wife uh, to a restaurant on Valentine's Day. And we were sitting at this restaurant. It was a meat restaurant called the Butcher Block. And I was really looking forward to this dinner. But the waiter was so irritating. You know one of those guys that hover? How's your meal, sir? That's fine. How's it now, sir? Like it was three minutes ago. Anything else you would like? And my wife could see me getting irritated. So she said, she kicks me out of the table. She says, he might know you. I've been in this village a long, long time. So if you bury as many people as I have and marry as many, you know most of the village. And so I said, okay, I'll be kind, but I'll blow him off. So I look at him and I say, that's an interesting necklace you've got around your neck. He had this lion with really red eyes around his neck. So he says, yeah, that's a part of my religion. So I said, oh, your religion. What religion is that? So this is now the second question I've asked him. So he says, Hare Krishna religion. I said, oh, Hare Krishna. So are you serious about that religion? That's my third question I asked him. He says, very serious. He says, he flicks his head around like this and he shows me a ponytail. And he says, I want to be a holy man. I said, a holy man? Why do you want to be a holy man? Fourth question. He says, well, you see, when I die, if I'm holy, then God won't send me back again. So I said, you mean reincarnation? Fifth question. He says, exactly. So I said, so let me get this right. So if you are holy, God won't send you back as a cat? He says, exactly. That was my sixth question. So I said, well, how's the holiness thing going then? Question number seven. He says, oh, actually not so well. So I said, I said, why? Question number eight. Question number eight. So she says, well, I've given up this sin and that sin and this. He was telling me all these things. I said, hang on, there's a, there's a lady here, bud. So, so then he says, yeah, but, but I still am smoking. So I said, uh-oh. Oh, you're not allowed to smoke? So he says, no, apparently not. So I said, uh-oh. Meow, you're coming back, boy. <laughs> At this stage, my wife is almost under the table. She's like, people can hear us. She's like kicking me. So he says, no, 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 no. He says, no, no, no. I, I'm going to get it right. I said, how? I said, I'm going to follow a guru. I said, you're going to follow a guru? He says, don't tell anyone. He leans forward like he says, I'm resigning from this place on Monday. So I said, oh, you're resigning. This is like question number 10 now. So he says, no, he's found his guru. And I'm not kidding you with this now. I said, where did you find your guru? He said, Australia. I am not kidding you. 
I am not kidding you. So, so I, I don't know where he is. Maybe sitting on Bondi Beach, cross-legged, smoking a cigar. I don't, I don't know what he's doing. But by this point, I've asked him. I, I'm not kidding about that Australian thing. So I, I, uh, I'd asked him about 10 or 12 questions. So then I said to him, now that you've told me about your religion, can I tell you the difference between your religion and my faith? Now, he couldn't really say no, could he? I mean, he's been preaching to me for the last 10 minutes. <laughs> Plus, I am about to give him a tip, and uh, he better listen to me. So I said, you see, your religion is like every other religion in the world. Every religion is like a stepladder. And God is holy, and we are not. You agree with that. You want to be holy. Every religion has made an attempt to try and get to a holy God. And so some religions make you obey certain rules. Other religions make you do good things. Other religions make you sit there and meditate and hum for a very long time. But every single religion is this futile attempt because God is so holy and we are such a mess. I said, have you ever played snakes and ladders? He says, of course I've played snakes and ladders. I said, you know what happens in that game, don't you? Meow, all the way down to the bottom. I said, I can guarantee you, my friend, you are going to give up smoking if you try hard enough, but then you're going to fall down somewhere. It's like there's grease on the stepladder your whole life. This is the difference. Jesus Christ is standing at the bottom of that stepladder. He came to the earth. No other God did that. And while I was yet a sinner, he wasn't waiting for me to become holy. He wasn't waiting for me to do all these tricks. While I was yet a sinner, he accepted me. I put my faith in him, and he's helping me climb this ladder. He didn't get saved. He didn't get saved, but I did say to him, when you have tried all you can, when you've climbed that ladder as many times as you can, and you've knocked all your teeth out sliding down, Remember, Jesus is standing at the bottom of the ladder. Now, how did I get there? By asking him questions. How did I get into the very thing of his heart that he needed to talk about? By asking him questions. We're not, we don't just have a formula and burst into someone's life and regurgitate the formula. We, Jesus said, can I have a drink? And that's how he stepped into this conversation. And then this is what goes on. Verse 10 says this. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was who was asking for you for a drink, you would be asking me, is what he says. And this lady says to him, oh, hang on a minute. Like, Are you greater than our father Jacob that you can get this water? You don't even have a bucket to draw it with. That's basically what uh, she says. Verse 13, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in them a spring water of welling up with eternal life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and keep coming here to draw water. So she didn't really have a clue what he was talking about, but he's getting her to talk about her thirsts. Now, when we get people to talk, 
So what is the thirst I was looking at in that Hare Krishna man? He, was, he had a longing to be right with God. There was a thirst in him. This woman had, had, had thirsts because, you know, Jesus discerns very quickly. She, she's been trying to satisfy that thirst with men. She's had five husbands. And the dude she's trying now, number six, I mean, she's, she really hasn't got the message. Men aren't going to do it for her. But she's talking about her thirst, and, and she's, she's obviously uncomfortable coming down to fetch water all by herself. And, you know, people have longings. Have you heard of the word, someone is power hungry? He's got a hunger for power. People have this longing for affirmation. They, they have appetites, and, and Jesus lets her talk. In fact, he engages her about her thirsts. And then he says, and I think Jesus must have said this. So the first thing we're saying is that where you are tomorrow is your workstation. And God, God gives us this example in Jesus of activating you in your workstation just by asking people questions. It's not a magic formula. It's just engage. And then when they talk, Listen, let them talk about their thirst. Let them talk about their longings. Let them talk about the thing that they want to. Why? Because we know Jesus is the answer to that. And, and God will give you a way to bring the gospel in there. And then, and then this is what Jesus does. She's talked about her thirst. And then he must have had a real twinkle in his eye when he said this. But he says, go fetch your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're absolutely right. And then he gives her this word of knowledge. You've had five. The dude you shacked up with, well, he's not your husband at all. She freaks out. Whoa, it's like you must be a prophet. How do you know this about me? So, so what are we doing here? We're allowing or inviting or asking God to break in. Now, I, I think then that many, many people will tell you about things, and before you even get the gospel to them, you can, you can speak to them about prayer. You can speak to them about God breaking in. God might even give you a, a prophetic word for them. And if you understand this, that salvation is not a change of mind, Salvation is the working of God. As the Holy Spirit, this is that's what it says in John 3, 3. Spirit, that's a chapter before this. Spirit, capital S, gives birth to spirit. That's what it is to become a new creation. That you are born of God. When the Spirit of God comes upon a person, he rege- the theological word is regenerates, makes you alive spiritually. If you understand that's what it takes to be born again, you know it's not a formula. It's heaven meeting earth. It's God meeting people. And and I think that there are many, many occasions where you see a massive need. They've been talking about their thirst. And you might not have a prophetic word, but you can say, do you know what? I believe that God can fix that. Or I'll tell you what, 
I'm going to pray for you for a whole week. I'm going to ask you again next week. Just what happened here? God touched this woman. What freaked her out? The woman said, uh, she, freaks, she freaks out. And then the woman said, I know that when the Messiah called the Christ is coming, that he's going to tell us all things. Because, you know, she had said, you know, best you go worship in Jerusalem, we're going to worship on this mountain. And Jesus had said to her, there's a time, there's time coming where it's not going to be where you worship, but it's going to be in spirit and in truth. He was leading her to this point that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, things are going to change, my girl. And, and so uh, I think after you've asked questions, the, the next step in is, it's not really a step, it's just this understanding that God can break in. God can heal. God can break in. Gee, Tom's flying here. Now, one last thought uh, before we have a break is it's interesting to me that Jesus said, go and call your husband. I think it was showing her that he had, he was, there was a supernatural dimension to him, that he was God himself. But it's the men that have been abusing this woman, isn't it? She's gone through five. She, five, in those days, there's a massive stigma to divorce. This woman must have been filled with hurt. Many of you tonight here could well have gone through a divorce. I know that there are people here that have had marriage pain in their lives, and that's huge. But you know, one of the reasons I think that God said, bring that dude. Be, because she did go to town. And she brought, not just him, she brought the entire village. But it's interesting, he was signaled out. I think that some people get led to the Lord when they hear the gospel. There are others who get led to the Lord when God convicts them in certain ways. But there's a group of people that have their hearts broken when they are forgiven when the people that they are persecuting loves them you know remember the story of Stephen Stephen was being killed by Paul he was on his knees they were stoning him Paul was overseeing it he had his cloaks at his feet he thought he was doing God a favor and the rocks were coming and they were he, they were they were shouting at him because because they were religiously, they, 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 they were demonically inspired. What does Stephen do? He looks up toward heaven and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Forgive who? Forgive these people killing him. Saul, the guy who's overseeing it, is having forgiveness thrown at him. Jesus was saying to this woman, go fetch those abusers, go fetch those men, go fetch that man. I think forgiveness was going to go to the arch enemy. So Stephen says, forgive them, Lord. And then he looks up toward heaven, and what does he see? He sees heaven open. And Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. What is Jesus normally doing at the right hand of the Father? Sitting. But here he is, standing. It's like Jesus standing at this. I can see him saying, like, who is forgiving like I forgave? Because Jesus forgave that way, didn't he? 
up on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And when he forgave them, what happened? Heaven opened, the curtain torn in two. There is a forgiveness that opens heaven, that tears it in two, where God breaks in. Stephen forgives, heaven opened, Jesus standing. What's the very next thing that happens? Paul is smacked to the ground, and the persecutor is confronted by the grace of Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? What was released? What released that? Forgiveness from the one persecuted. I'm telling you, maybe your boss, maybe it's an unsaved spouse, maybe it's a father that hates God, maybe it's a neighbor that picks on you every Sunday morning when he sees you getting off going to church. But the people that are coming up against you, I'm telling you the key for the gospel to break in, for heaven to be open over them, is forgiveness. Do you remember when Jesus was risen from the dead, John 20, 19, what does he say? He gets them together and he breathes on them. <sighs> Physically breathes on them. John 20, verse 20 or 19. He breathes on them. If he had garlic that day, they would have been slain in the spirit physically breathes on them, and he, this is what he says, receive my spirit. So he's, he's breathing on them, showing them that they need something, and then these are his very next words, whoever you forgive is forgiven, is released. He wasn't saying you're going to put them in heaven. What was he saying? When you receive my spirit, the people that are persecuting you, the people that are against you, the people that are the most hostile to the Christian faith. Those people, when they come up against you and you receive my spirit and you love them and you breathe forgiveness to them, heaven opens like it did over Saul. Why the heck did God save Saul? A murdering, bigoted, horrible man. And yet God says, I'm gonna open heaven. I'm gonna save that one. He's gonna build my church. Stephen. The only clue we have is Stephen. Father, don't hold this against him. In fact, I'm going to breathe your spirit on them. I'm going to forgive him and I'm going to ask you to open heaven over his life. I think that lady, I mean, I may be reading into it a little bit, but it's fascinating to me that Jesus says, go fetch the dude. And she's had five dudes and she didn't know how to pick him. So I think number five was a piece of work. And Jesus says, that's the one I'm going to save. So I think sometimes when we do a passage like this, we think, oh, just nice people are getting saved. This little gentle woman from Samaria. No, no. The gospel reaches the hardest hearts when the Holy Spirit empowers us to forgive. When you've been persecuted at work, they're the ones who are closest to salvation. When you're being persecuted by your spouse or your family that are unsaved, as you breathe the forgiveness and the grace of heaven over them, they're the closest to the kingdom. The question I'm asking you and me is that it's not an accident where God has put us, where we're working, where we're living, where our kids are going to school. Uh, secondly, the way we engage is just to start asking questions. And I think sometimes for weeks, we're just asking questions. And we're asking the Lord, show me what their thirsts are. Show me what the issues are. Show me, show me where you want to minister, Lord. Show me, show me the vehicle that I can bring the gospel in on. 
And Jesus got to that with this particular lady about thirst. And then I think you should be praying for them and praying that God gives you an opportunity to pray or an opportunity to prophesy or an opportunity to... I, I know people have... One guy said to me that they had a dream. I said, a dream? So he told me his dream. And I said, do you think God speaks to us in dreams? Oh, God. So I said, no, sometimes it's cheese and too much pizza. But I think God spoke to you. Really? Would God? Yeah, God, God gets our attention that way sometimes. And you know, you, as long as you bring Jesus into it, uh, it's a way of getting it to them. And I can give you some examples, but let's uh, move on. And then, and then I, I said, I wonder why Jesus said, go and get the bloke. And I think I've seen over and over again in Scripture that what opens abusers' hearts, what opens ugly people's hearts is when saints forgive. And, and sometimes you, you don't even have to preach the gospel. You're just saying, Jesus, forgive. Don't hold this against them, Lord. Let me be kind to them. It's more than turn the other cheek. It's, it's breathe forgiveness. Heaven opens. There are a couple of things that open heaven. Well, actually, the Bible says the hand of God opens heaven. But what activates the hand of God? And one of them is forgiveness. Another one is tithing, actually. Windows of heaven are open to Malachi. But forgiveness is, is a huge way that we see heaven open. And then um, Jesus said to her, when she said, look, the Messiah one day will tell us all these things. She, he says to this woman, I am he. Very few people, Jesus said, I am the Messiah. He sort of waited for it, but this lady, he, he didn't wait. He said, I am he. And just then his disciples returned and were surprised to see him talking to a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back into the town and said to the people, come see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? I'm going to take you right to the very last verse in this particular story and eventually they said, they asked Jesus to stay there another two days. And then it says, and they believed because of what Jesus said, not because of the woman's testimony. Which means for the first two days, they believed because of the woman's testimony. And what was her testimony? Come see the man who told me everything. He told me all about these blokes. He told, she said, everything I ever did. So her whole life was summed up in these five calamitous marriages. That's her testimony. What was her testimony? Well, I had these disastrous marriages. Bloke one, bloke two, bloke three, bloke four, bloke five. Useless. Bloke number six, he was so useless I didn't even marry him. I met a man who's called the Messiah, and he wanted to talk to me. And he wanted to give me eternal life. And he said that I, I would never thirst again. And he said that, that he would nourish me. And could this be the Messiah? That was her testimony. It's very hard to argue with somebody's testimony. I, we've all got testimonies. Do you want, do you want to know my, my testimony is? I, I don't have a drug, sex, rock and roll testimony. This is my testimony. When I was 10 years old, my father, who went to school with Garth, actually, 
a couple of years older than Garth, but went to the same school. My father, when I was 10 years old, came in and sat on my bed. Now, the only thing I'd ever known was a guy who enjoyed parties, smoked a lot more than that Hare Krishna that I was speaking about, <laughs> was a high-flying businessman, and he was a tough man. I'd never seen him cry, but that day he was very emotional. He had my nine-year-old brother sitting next to me and my eight-year-old brother sitting next to him. And we looked at our father, who looked like he had lost it, and said, boys, today your dad gave his heart to Jesus. So we don't know what that meant. And he said, and so should you. And, and so we said, okay, like, yes, sir. And he said, get on your knees. So I don't know where my dad's faith became mine. I don't know that. But I can tell you, because it's a long time ago now, I'm 54 today. Well, a few days, months ago. No, 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 a few months ago. So... <laughs> But when I was 12 years old, what's that, 42 years ago, I was water baptized. And when I was 13 years old, I was filled with the Spirit. So somewhere between 10 and 12, Dad's faith faded and my faith began. And my story is, God got me when I was 10 and he's held me ever since. That's my story. And you can't argue with it. Because it's my story. And, and if you've got a child that you're raising, you can say, you can lean on, I think it's Proverbs 22, is it? That you raise up a child in the way it should go. And he will not depart from it. He, he might do a bit of a detour, but you can lean on that scripture. My brother who was nine back then in 1977 is a pastor in Manchester. My brother who was eight then in 1977 is a pastor just outside London. And so... For 40-something years, the Lord has held these three boys. And how did it happen? Well, right there, right there, we met Jesus. And I think I could tell you that testimony over 45 minutes. And I could tell you that testimony over 10 minutes. And I've just told it to you over one minute. I think, like that woman who ran into the village, if you're serious about being part of the gospel, the Missio, Missio Day with Jesus. All you've got to do is ask yourself this question. What was my life like before Jesus? How did I meet Jesus? And what's my story with Jesus now? That's your testimony. In fact, you don't just have one testimony. You have testimony after testimony after testimony. Let me tell you another testimony that I have. This is really getting off the track, but it's a good testimony. I was sitting in my lounge down in Cape Town. So South Africa, Africa has got a tip to it. Cape Town is right down the very bottom. That's where I live now. I used to live same place as these guys, two days drive away from that up the East Coast. So I, I live 20 days of the month down there. Then I fly back and I spend 10 days up there. And then I fly 20 days back. I've got a great wife, hey, that does that <laughs> every single month. And so we lead churches in various areas. And so I was sitting down in Cape Town. We don't know too many people there. And I felt that God had said he wants to do something in Somerset West. That's a city about 45 minutes away. So there were two families there that I knew. But these guys were old, man. I mean, 
God's a spring chicken compared to these guys. And uh, so we went to visit them because they're the only people I knew in Somerset West. Driving out, I offered to run a home group for them. My wife says, Grant, are you mad? This is like 45 minutes one way. Two old geriatrics. They don't even know. They don't even know who's in the village. They're brand new. They came from Durban. They don't even know anybody. What are we going to do there? So for around about three months, we drove every Thursday night. We drove out 45 minutes, ran a home group, 45 minutes back. Eventually, there's about 17 people there. Some of them a little bit younger, thankfully. And one afternoon, I was getting ready to go to run this home group. Remember, I felt God say he wants to do something there. And I hear my wife on the phone to another pastor from Johannesburg. That's another city. Three days drive in the other direction, or two days drive. And um, the pastor's saying to my wife, someone's going through a divorce in Cape Town. Can you visit this person? So I'm hearing the conversation. So I shout loud enough for this pastor to hear that's talking to my wife. Hey, if you know of anyone else that hasn't got problems, give me that number. I'll follow them up. I was just kidding. So they say, actually, there's someone at Somerset West. We don't know why he moved there, but he's a good guy and he moved there. This is his number. So I phone him. Immediately I phone him. So hello, Craig, this is Grant Crawford speaking. It's absolutely dead quiet on the phone. So I said, Craig, I'm a pastor from KZN. He said, no, I know who you are. But he's just quiet. So I said, I believe you in Somerset West. So he said, yeah. So I said, well, how about a cup of coffee? He, he said, well, okay, like when? So I said, I can get there in 45 minutes. How about that? <laughs> okay, and there was just quiet on the phone. Eh? So he says, okay. So I pitch up with my wife. He's bought in this fancy estate. He stands at the door. He's holding on to his wife, looking like he's seen a ghost. So he says, as I get out of the car, he says, stop, Grant. Before you get out, I just want to apologize for being rude. This is why I was rude. This morning at five o'clock, I had a dream about you. I dreamed you were going to phone me. So I woke up my wife. And I told my wife, Grant Crawford's going to phone me. She said, don't be mad. He doesn't know we exist. They had been at a conference that I'd spoken at. They're from, a, they're from a city two days away. So I said, hang on a minute. Five o'clock today, he said, nine hours ago. Nine hours ago, I dreamt you were phoning me. And now you're standing in front. So I said, well, your wife was right. I've never heard of you before. But you had that dream today. I'm coming into your house now. I'm having coffee with you now. And we're going to find out what God's up to. That guy today took over that connect group, that home group that we're running, and there is a massive move of God happening there. What is that? That's God. What was I before? That encounter, I was languishing on a couch, wondering what I was doing with the geriatric society. <laughs> then God breaks in. Now we're living in a revival. Now I can tell... God's dealt with you recently. What's your story? What's he said to you? Do some of you know who Dave Hagar is? Last night, Dave Hagar was at a meeting that I was speaking at the other end of your city. I look at him, and he reminds me of a guy who's had a hip replacement on his left hip that I know in another nation. I get up, and I grab the microphone, and I say, good to see you all. And Dave, what are you doing in this church? I look at him across there and he looks at me. He says, ah, you know, sensational, he loves to say. 
And uh, so I said, Dave, you remind me of a man who's just had a hip replacement. The place went crazy. Dave has just had a hip replacement of his left hip. And sensational. <laughs> sensational. But as that was, as I saw this, I looked at him and I saw a guy and I saw the hip replacement and I felt God say, give me a word for Dave. God speaks to you. He speaks to you. And so this woman, God had spoken to this woman and he, all she did was say what God had said. Next minute, the entire village is coming to see Jesus. What have you got to share? It's not theology 101. It's this is what I was, this is what God said, and this is where I am now. And nobody can argue with it because it's your story. Come and see the man who has told me everything that I ever did. Could he be the Messiah? I don't think it's just testimony. I think part of the mission of Jesus is invitation into what the local church is doing. Jesus meets with you guys here. I was amazed at you singing uh, karaoke style. Because this guy used to be our chief worship leader for decades. But as you guys started singing, I thought, God's here. Just as you started singing, it was just like, he's here. And when you invite people to a place where God is, people meet him. And sometimes, you know, Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthians, he says there'll be a prophecy and those who are unsaved will say, surely, they'll be cut to the heart and say, surely God is among you. And so this woman says, come to the place. He's meeting people. Come to where he's meeting people. We give, uh, can I borrow your phone? I don't know if they've got these things in, in Australia. Apparently not. This is a pretty little thing. <laughs> but our phones, we have these rubber pouches that you can stick on and put your credit cards in it. And so we've got One Life, that's the name of our church, written on these things. And students put their varsity cards in, or you put your gym card in, or I put my credit cards in, because I'll never lose my phone, so I'll never lose the credit card. <laughs> but everywhere I sit, I turn over my phone. So it's got, it's white on black, One Life Church. The number of people who've said, like, what is that? Because people don't know what this thing is. It's carrying the cards. Now, they're talking about what is that that's carrying the cards, but I think they're saying, what, what's that? One Life Church. <laughs> Great way to get a conversation going. You should come and see. Um, we have a soccer team in our city. Not a very good one, but it's a soccer team nonetheless. Maritzburg United. One day I was reading the newspaper, and I see it had a new soccer coach. You know when bad soccer teams... Um, are trying to reinvent themselves. They fire their coaches. It's like the best thing to do. If you, have, if you have like three losses, you just fire the coach and we think it's going to change things. So there's this guy on the back there and his, his name was Vladimir Herrick. Icy blue eyes. Looked just like Vladimir Putin. Bald head, icy eyes. And as I looked at the back, I said to my wife, that guy's lonely. 
He's a Russian. You know how many Russians are there in our city? Zero. I said to my wife, you probably can't hardly speak English. The poor dude is going to get fired in a few months anyway. But he, here he is on the back page of our newspaper. So I, I know everybody in our city. So I phoned somebody, phoned somebody, phoned somebody who, who had his phone number. So I phoned him. I said, Coach Herrick, he says, yes. So I said, congratulations on your draw last night. I mean, that was a big win to get a draw. Just like <laughs> one, one. So he said, thank you. So I said, on behalf of the citizens of Maritzburg, I'd like to welcome you to our city. <laughs> he said, thank you. I mean, he didn't know what the heck the protocol was in our city. So I said, um, I would like to welcome you to the city and to have a lunch with you. So he said, yes. Can you believe it? He didn't even know who I was. I could have been an axe murderer. He still said yes. So I said, well, where do you know? So he, he tells me this restaurant he knows. Anyway, I go to the restaurant, and I'm carrying the newspaper in because I've got to be able to see the guy. He's smoking this Cuban cigar. He's going, and the, you know, the smoke is going like this. So I sit there in front of him, and I ask him questions. He's got twin daughters, 12 years old, in Russia. Doesn't speak English well. I went through stuff that I'm talking to you about tonight. He, he didn't get saved. But I got to this point. I said to him, I knew I wasn't going to lead him to the Lord in the restaurant. I mean, he was, he was trying to work out how he said yes <laughs> to lunch with a priest. So I said to him, so are you religious? If you're talking to a priest, you generally say yes to them. So I said, what church do you go to? He says, Russian Orthodox. I said, I've got some great news for you. He said, what? I said, I've got some great news and I've got some bad news. So he says, what? So I said, oh, the bad news is this. The closest Russian Orthodox church to here is 1,000 kilometers away. <laughs> but this is the great news. The next best thing to a Russian Orthodox church is the church that I lead. <laughs> you should come to that. So he said, I will. So I said, okay, I'm going to come and watch your soccer team. You come to our church service. So on the Saturday night, I went to the soccer team. Somehow I got in there. It's owned by Muslims. And uh, I know a Muslim and knows a Muslim and knows a Muslim who got me in because you battle to get into these events because I wanted to stand behind the coaching box. So I, see, and so I whistle and I can whistle. So I whistle. So he looks at me and I say, He got saved. He got saved on the Sunday. What, not because of what I preached. He didn't get saved when I preached. The presence of God was there. Come and see. Come and see. You, you might be saying, oh God, I, I can't. Just bring him to come and see. You have to explain. If the preacher makes a mess, it doesn't matter. If the musos, you know, miss a key, it doesn't matter. God's here, the Messiah's here. That's what it is. And, and so this whole village has come. He got fired two months later. He went down to Nelson Mandela Bay, which is another place, and I phoned a pastor, my friend. He, he hooked up with him, and he's back in, in Russia, which I don't know is a good idea right now, but anyway, that, that, that's where he is. The disciples come back. I'm going to shorten it for the sake of time. 
And they're surprised to see him talking to a woman. And they say, Rabbi, eat something. He says to them, I have had food to eat that you know nothing about. Look, the fields are white unto harvest. The disciples were puzzling. They were saying, look at food. Like, did this lady bring him a lunchbox? I was like, like, what? Just think about this. Here's Jesus. He'd been sitting when they left him. Has he had anything to eat? No. Has he had a drink? Not that we know of. Is there any reason he should be less tired? No, he's been talking to some woman. And yet Jesus says, put the lunchbox away. I have had food. Something is sustaining me. What does food do? Gives you energy. Nourishes you. I've had food that you know nothing about. Look, the fields. What's he looking at? The whole jolly Samaritan village is running down to see him. Every woman, child, and every, every, all the five blokes plus the other dude, they're all coming. And he says, no time to eat. I've had food. In other words, I'm strengthened by something that's happened. What? Lives are busy changing. Remember the sower and the reaper are going to rejoice together. You know, you don't have to be on the mission of Jesus, but why wouldn't you want to be? It, if it energized Jesus, I mean, I promise you, when my little grandson, they're calling him Judah, when he arrives in five weeks' time, my wife won't sleep that night. There will be a party in our village until the sunrise. I think that I will preach a message that Sunday, something about new life. I'm pretty sure I will. <laughs> I've already I've built a little golf green for him. We are getting ready for him. Uh, my, my, my son, who is a cricketer, is already telling me where to build a cricket pitch so that he can coach him. He's not even born yet. Do you know what it says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10? You are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. To do good works that he prepared in advance that you might walk in them. When you look at a person, that Hare Krishna waiter or Vladimir Herrick, it's not just a trophy that's put in a cabinet in heaven. You are God's workmanship. You know what that word workmanship means? Masterpiece. Handiwork. Every human being, that's why abortion is so horrific. That's why murder is so bad. Every human being, even the dude who's head of ISIS, is created in the image of God. He's God's workmanship. He's his masterpiece. But when you are born again, you are not only his workmanship. You are created in Christ Jesus. He breathes his new life in you. So it's like you were a masterpiece hanging in a gallery with the lights off. And suddenly the light of the world lights you up and now you create his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus. But you're not just hanging there for the world to see. For good works that God has prepared in advance for you to walk in. And so when, when people get saved, 
it's not just the thought that they're going to heaven. They are going to heaven, but that heaven is coming to them. And their life on earth now has meaning, it changes. And Jesus looks at it with this woman, and he's basically saying, put up by your lunchboxes. Can't you see a woman is being transformed right now before our eyes? She's never going to have to go and thirst again, looking for another bloke to try and satisfy her, because that hasn't been working. There's going to be a river of water inside her that rises up to eternal life, and it's giving Jesus fire in his eyes. And his disciples are busy clutching, saying, we wasted all this time going to fetch this lunch now. Because now, now look what's happening. Even now, the one who reaps draws his wages and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may be glad together. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We now have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Pray, another text says, for the workers in the harvest. Because the harvest is plentiful and the workers are flu. You know, when your, your elders say the longing of our heart is that we as a church can be involved in the harvest. They're doing the most loving thing to you. They're saying, pray with us. Pray for the workers. Pray for the harvest. Pray for the souls to be saved. There's so much more we could say about this text, but it is 8.30. I trust that I've been able to lay just a little brick alongside your elders to say this is a beautiful and a noble thing to present the gospel, to present Jesus to a world that, that needs him. Can I pray for you? Can we stand together and... Let me pray for you as a church. Russ and Joe, I, I believe that this coffee shop of yours is not a good idea, it's a, a God idea. And in that, it's only one of the watering points. It's like a, that's why I spoke on this woman at the well. It's, it's the coffee point. It's the water point. It's going to be a prophetic sign. But, but, but it's just a touch. It's just a tip of the iceberg of what God is wanting to do. For those of you who've got people that really are ugly to you, close in your world who are hostile to the gospel, maybe just for a moment before we close, just allow the Holy Spirit to come upon you. Jesus breathed on his disciples and his disciples in John 20 were running away. They had hidden away because persecution was so great. And Jesus said at that point, I'm going to breathe on you now. I'm going to breathe on you as the persecutors are running around trying to sort you out. I'm going to breathe on you. And as you forgive, heaven opens. If you have those hostilities around you, just receive the breath of heaven right now. Father, I pray for decisions to be made now. I pray that you would activate your church with love and healing and forgiveness. Spouses, family members, colleagues, 
let heaven break in. I pray for divine appointments, Lord, for everyone. And I pray that there would be no striving, for we do not save, you do. There will be no hard work because it's the grace of Jesus that saves. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. But we get to do this. And I pray that you would sweep us along in your mission, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.